गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदाले कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय तदभक्ताय श्री राधा गोविंद जी की जय श्री सचिनंदन गौरहरी की जय श्री हरिनाम प्रभु की जय श्री एकादशी की जय श्री जुलन जत्र की जय गौर भक्त वृंद की जय गौर प्रमान गुड मॉर्निंग फॉर वेलकम प्रणाम and thank you so much for coming so <clears throat> today we are in our last meeting of this series of three lectures we plan to share here on the main theme of radical personalism in connection to uh, a recent book i published with that name radical personalism revival manifesto for proactive devotion and we have touched upon a few of the main themes of the book yesterday and the day before yesterday we talked about the importance of being fully human fully divine how to integrate our human experiences our human condition in our bhakti project in our spiritual enterprise and how these two are not mutually exclusive but mutually nourishing with each other and Yesterday we touched upon the idea of vulnerability and empowerment as an extension of what it doesn't mean to be human it means to be vulnerable to acknowledge our vulnerability as a portal to empowerment vulnerability not being a problem an ontological problem of our condition of our makeup but actually a very uh, transformative mm, basically can experience condition that we can embrace when we are able to experience vulnerability from a place of honesty sincerity in a safe environment in a safe space so much empowerment can come from that so in connection to to this we want to talk today on one last topic connected to radical personalism the topic is the title of today's presentation is knowing through unknowing uh and as counterintuitive as that may sound you know, that's how any deep knowing happens you know? and this is a very important point i will connect that to yesterday because remember yesterday we also mentioned that vulnerability can be described in three main from three main perspectives i don't know if you recall i don't want to take a test test you but one of them was emotional exposure another was uh, risk and another was uncertainty so this somehow overflows to today's topic because today i would like to talk about this i would like to talk about the importance of how to embrace uncertainty as a way of knowing we already mentioned that the ultimate knowing i think we mentioned that on friday the ultimate form of knowing is love rajavidya krishna says in the bhagavad gita rajavidyam rajaguhyam so the love bhakti is the highest is the highest of all secrets but also is the topmost form of knowing but love at the same time as we mentioned i think yesterday 
creates fulfilling, but also creates a new necessity, a new form of vulnerability. And love makes its own rules. Love is not something to be uh, controlled by us, but we are to be controlled by love, which means love moves in a very uh, unpredictable way. That's how the scriptures have mentioned it. Love moves in a crooked way, like a snake, not in a straightforward manner, but in a way that you cannot predict which will be the next movement. And love is the goal of our life. So if love moves in um, through unpredictability, and that's our goal, better we prepare to inhabit a land when unpredictability will be the norm, basically. Love is the norm, unpredictability is the norm, which means I'm not in control here. I'm not coming here to control. I'm coming here to honor every atom. Srila Siddhar Marash will say, the spiritual world is a place where everything is made of a higher substance than what we are made ourselves, so to say. So we are meant to go there to serve everything and everyone there. Nobody is to serve us. We are to serve everything there. Of course, the very nature of love is that everyone is serving each other by the strength of love, but we shouldn't go there with that motivation, so to say. You know? I want someone to serve me there, but it's that's the nature of love. So, so everything moves in a very unpredictable way. Hmm? And of course, this a good point to begin with is talking about God. Hmm? Talking about God and talking about how him in all his unlimited forms, our tradition describes how different forms of God are asankhya. Asankhya means uncountable. We may have our favorite face of the absolute or faces of the absolute, but at the same time, they're uncountable face of the absolute and all of them are, again, unlimited. And they are filled with love, filled with unpredictability. So again, we are relating to someone who by nature is to be defined as unpredictable. Not unstable in terms of like psychologically dysfunctional, <laughs> no? because that sound, it, it may sound like that, oh my gosh, I'm related with like a totally unpredictable guy. I don't know what, I don't know what will happen at the next five seconds. I don't know if I can sustain that for eternity. <laughs> no? I don't know if I can sustain that for a, for five minutes to speak of eternity. So I, I'm not trying here to discourage you from from the spiritual project no? by presenting God as a completely unstable, dysfunctional guy. That, that's not that's not the point. The point is, it's someone completely in love with everything. In that sense, it's unpredictable. It's totally charming. It's totally. Uh, Cap capturing, capturing is totally captivating, is totally astonishing, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, there's place for unpredictability being attractive. That's the point. You know? Because again, the main question is why unpredictability is not attractive or doesn't sound attractive for us. Probably not because unpredictability is unattractive, but because we have been somehow become addicted to predictability to certainty, to things fitting into boxes, and for us being able to label reality, so everything remains in their place, 
and we remain in control, which of course is complete false myth. No, we are not in control, but we like to think we are. No? So somehow we can cope with existence by thinking, no, things are relatively in control, <laughs> in my control. But of course, as I always like to share this image that I once saw uh, in Argentina, that was, I was, I'm born there. So I was there once and I was, I mean, I recall the exact scenario. That was a photocopy shop. Do you call it like that? I mean, you no longer have that stuff probably. A place where you can get photocopies. You say photocopy, right? So I went there for having some photocopies of something. I don't know what, but there was a sign on the side and there was like a picture of a, of a, I think it was like a Buddhist monk sitting on a rock in the, in the midst of the lake. So the classical you know, mindfulness scenario. And the quote was like, relax, everything is out of control. <laughs> no? Yeah. But it was saying that said, everything is out of control. Not out of control, out of your control, but under someone else's control, who, by the way, is called the supreme controller. So he must be doing his job pretty well. <laughs> That's one name of Krishna is Ishwar or Parameshwar, which means the supreme controller. And of course, also the point here is that he controls everything by love. Because again, the, the idea of having a supreme controller doesn't sound too, too attractive. Like, I don't want to be controlled. Mm -mm -mm. I want to be free. I want to. But there is a form of control that we all want and, and, and which constitutes the highest freedom, paradoxically, and that's love. Now, if you have a mother with his child, with her child, sorry, she will be controlled by the child, by, and the child will be controlled by her. But there is, yeah, yeah, we are always talking from the base foundation of ideal archetypes. So, so love can afford mutual control, but at the same time, it's a type of control where we feel we are growing, we are expanding. I'm controlled by love, and I'm growing by that. So again, it may sound counterintuitive because our general idea is if I'm controlled, I cannot grow. I'm, I'm, I'm growing smaller, so to say. <laughs> but no, if, if we are properly controlled by love, everything is in constant expansion. And that's our philosophy. There is a supreme controller, which by the way, is not us. <laughs> and that supreme controller is ruling everything by love. And that supreme controller is also supremely controlled by love. That makes him the supreme controller, the supreme controlled one as well. He's not exception to the rule of Krishna himself says in the Bhagavatam. In fact, he say by Narayan, Ham Bhakta Puradino Hyashatantribaduja. So he's saying, I am completely under the control of the affection of my devotees. I have not any sort any form of independence from that love. So I'm completely in love, basically. Sada Bohri Dayam Mayam, he says, I'm the heart of my devotees are in my heart. I'm their heart. They are my heart. So we worship a God who is, has fallen in love for it from time without beginning. And in that condition, everything is ruled by love. But again, that everything is ruled by love is the greatest blessing, the greatest form of freedom. Again, the most effective form of control. <laughs> but at the same time, 
it belongs to the realm of uncertainty, unpredictability. Because again, in a loving relationship, nothing is, love is controlling. We are not controlling. We are being controlled by love. So love makes its own rules. Um, neither of the two parts of the relationship know what happens next. But that's exciting. There's place for being excited about unpredictability. Like when we were kids or young, yeah, young children, we were very much in tune with the notion of uh, chamatkar, we call it in Sanskrit. Chamatkar means astonishment. We were discovering, curious at every step, and life has so much meaning and purpose, and we could be like hours and hours just exploring whatever, anything. <laughs> But somehow we matured now, and there is no more curiosity, no more astonishment, because we now know what everything is, quote unquote, with many quotation marks in between. <laughs> we are sure we somehow understood, got this idea that to be grow grown up person and to be mature means to have everything figured out, to have everything under control, and. Inadvertently, we had become addicted to certainty in the process of that. So now somehow we are grown-ups and we are mature, but we are many times terrified about uncertainty, terrified about what's going on outside of my comfort zone, terrified about the possibility of not knowing something. <laughs> so so today I, I like to talk about that. I like to talk about the the importance of exploring mystery, so to say, the importance of embracing darkness, the importance of uh, coexisting with paradox, the importance of knowing through knowing, basically. I, I was planning to begin sh sharing one quote that I put in my book, but I forgot to bring my book. So do, do I see that there's one there. Thank you, Dr. Ras. I'd like to, to share with you one quote that I, because today's topic, I made a whole chapter in my book about it. It's, for me, it's important enough as to make a whole chapter about that. Thank you. So the, 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 the chapter is called Divine Ignorance, Knowing Through Darkness, Doubt, and Paradox. So the, the chapter begins with a quote by a Christian, a Jesuit monk and biologist, a mystic called Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, which is a very interesting quote. I love it. So he says like that. He's speaking here about knowing through unknowing in connection to God, in connection to never be too sure who God is. Watch out for taking Krishna for granted, something like that. So he says, God does not offer himself to our finite beings as a thing all complete and ready to be embraced. For us, his eternal discovery and eternal growth the more we think we understand him, the more he reveals himself as otherwise. The more we think we hold him, the further he withdraws, drawing us into the depths of himself. Pure Teilhard de Chardin, Jai. So he's making this very interesting point here. The more we think we know who God is, the less we know technically speaking. And again, this, this is not just, so Maharaj is 
is quoting mystical Christianity and that has not has nothing to do with our own tradition. We 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 are the opposite. No, we are not the opposite. We are not promoting. Be sure about who God is and think that you have controlled him forever or something. Not at all. There is this famous quote from, from the Kena Upanishad, which is one of our texts. And the Kena Upanishad says, one who claims to know God, he doesn't know God. One who claims to not, not, not know God, he does know God. Of course, it's not just saying, I don't know God, therefore I know God. It's not just <laughs> like that. No? But the point is, if you claim, I know who God is, it's like, hmm, that means you don't have too much actual experience of the infinite. Now, how much you can affirm, I know the infinite fully. I mean, that's, in itself, it's, it's all of you are seeing you, and you are all like. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, maybe we, we, we are not brave enough as to say that, but we may think in those terms. We may think, I, I have figured out Krishna. I know, I know the name of her mother, his mother, father, village. I have all the technical details of his daily life. Yes, but still all that can be information. That doesn't mean we are inhabiting those concepts. Every concept we receive, and there are many, <laughs> we have to inhabit the concept. We have to live inside the concept. It's not just some intellectual, like dopamine peak or something like, wow. I know something new now. I memorized this verse and I know this new concept. I'm knowing Krishna more and more, the more information I have. If that doesn't lead us to transformation, information can really get in the way. Trila Rupa Goswami says that. Knowledge can make your heart harder. Although the purpose of knowledge is to melt your heart, but we have to deal with knowledge in a way that is actually melting and not hardening. So one of these ways is to embrace uncertainty, to embrace the possibility that God, I, with this I'm not saying, I, I mentioned that in my book, just for you to understand, with this I'm not proposing you cannot know God, you, you can never know God. I'm not saying that, I'm saying you can know him endlessly. That's not the same. I'm not saying you don't know anything about Krishna. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you can know about him endlessly. So re watch out to remain open to that. Never close the door to that and reach the day that, okay, I know everything about Krishna now. And if you think like that, be ready for <laughs> what's next. <laughs> Krishna's taking note of everything. Oh, okay. We'll share one of those instances as, as they are describing Shastra when, with Brahma himself at the end. No? When he thought, I have figured out Krishna. And this guy is not acting as I know Krishna is. And Krishna's like... Okay, so our spiritual practice, our faith journey, our spirit, our bhakti devotional loving project, so to say, is a lot about faith. I mean, without faith, we cannot enter into any deep spiritual experience. And of course, faith doesn't only mean uh, believing in something. I always like when someone asks, Carl Jung, they asked him, do you believe in God? So he was smart enough. And he was smart enough. But he was smart enough as to reply to that question. <laughs> saying, do you believe in God? He said, no. I don't believe in God. 
I know that he exists. So we make the difference between believing in something. You believe that, yeah, but you have had no actual personal experience. You know? if, if someone asks me, do you believe in Vaikuntha Dev? And I say, no, no, it's, it's not that I believe in him. I know him. I met him. He exists. So I don't need to believe that he is real. No, I have the direct experience. So faith has more to do with that. We have in a particular direct undeniable experience undeniable which is not easy to understand but at the same time is impossible to deny that, that that's the, the nature of the experience of god it's like how to say too deep to comprehend but too real to to deny it's inconceivable undeniable inconceivable undeniable we can be like that three hours saying the same thing no <laughs> Now, we, we cannot fully grasp it with our head, with our faculties through which we used to understand everything. But it's so real that we cannot deny. We cannot say, no, yeah, I was just hallucinating. I was like, there was too much like overstimulus from whatever. So I had the experience. No, no, it was too real to, to ascribe that experience to all these other possible reasons. No, it's too real to deny. <laughs> But at the same time, again, faith has to do with a journey in which we are relating with the infinite. So that's lot, there's lots of mystery there. Krishna is the ultimate mystery. In the Bhagavatam, love has been described as Paramaguhyan. Paramaguhyan means the highest of all secrets, all mysteries. Where Guhi appears in the Bhagavad Gita many times. Sarva Guhyatama many times. Secret, 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 secret. This is secret. This is mysterious. This is very confidential. So, again, this is not something easily graspable that I can like, okay, this is it. This is divine love. This is God. This is, you know, we can touch one point upon an infinite line and get some glimpse of that. But there's always so much more. <laughs> so faith when I say faith, again, that's, it's not so much faith, a journey of certitude, a journey of I know everything, demanding certitude. But it's a journey of, as I like to describe my book, faith is being patient, patient with mystery. That's faith. I have an undeniable, undeniable experience of God, but at the same time, there are so many things about him that I don't fully understand. And it's okay. I have to coexist with unknowing. And Krishna is mysterious. He's a supreme mystery. And mystery is something that, again, generally we, we are not patient, patient with mystery. Some, something mysterious, like I want to figure out that as soon as possible. I don't want to keep the mystery as mystery. I want to kill mystery and make it something figurable. But that's not how it works. <laughs> mystery is mystery. <laughs> And we have to be okay with that. Again, Krishna is mystery personified. He's unpredictable. But he's loving, he's sweet, he's charming, he's full of unconditional love. Just in case, put everything on the scale. <laughs> he's not a cruel, dysfunctional, mysterious person. No, on the contrary. So faith has to do with that, with having patience with mystery. Life is unfolding in a particular way, which is mysterious, which I don't fully understand, but I know God is behind that. 
and I have to allow mystery to be mystery. I don't have to get too nervous and too anxious and trying like to figure it out what's going on. Chila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswatakura say that once, like one of the symptoms of of lack of faith is impatience. I'll repeat it again. And again, I'm not pointing at anyone, <laughs> although some of you are raising your hands. I'll raise my hands first, just in case. Uh, and there are degrees of this, of course. There are degrees of faith, and there's, there are degrees of impatience as well. <laughs> so it's not that if you, have if you are impatient, you have no faith. There are degrees. But he will say, a symptom of lack of faith on some level is impatience. Therefore, a symptom of faith is patience. And patience means I'm waiting while trusting. Patience doesn't mean like I'm waiting, but I'm getting neurotic inside of me. I'm going crazy, but I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. You're not waiting, nothing. No, you're dying. <laughs> so real patience means I wait, while I trust. I'm, I'm trusting the unfolding of life. I'm trusting who is behind that unfolding. I'm trusting his intentions, his vision, his bigger picture. I'm trusting, but I. it's clear that I have to wait. It's very clear that many times we have to wait and to, and, and to be open again in, in astonishment how will this unfold and not getting like... I want this to happen in this particular way. And this way, Krishna, this is the way you have to unfold reality for me in this precise moment. And Krishna is like, I am Krishna, not you. Don't forget. Don't try to make this like this movie of the guy, which was, he wanted to be God for a day. I don't remember the name, but it was interesting. He was like, I don't, I don't agree with how you are allowing reality to unfold. So I think I, I would do better than you. Allow me to be God for a day. Okay, God saying, God be God for a day, and everything went chaos, absolute chaos. <laughs> so, so my point is faith, and again, it does. This is a very important word, and I'm trying to redefine it because sometimes we may have the wrong idea about faith, thinking it is a journey of certitude, it's a control cruise where everything has to happen predictably, and it's exactly the opposite. Hmm? Sometimes I ask to people, what's the opposite of faith? So what will you reply? Without thinking too much, please. What's the opposite of faith? Fear. Fear. <laughs> okay, I appreciate the replies. But as you know, when you ask this type of question, you already have your own answer in mind. So whatever doesn't fix that, not, it's not wrong, but it's not what I expected to get to share with you now, which is, Oh, yeah, the opposite of faith is fear, is impatience. But I will say, to my point, the opposite of faith is certainty. To make that point stronger. the opposite, Because sometimes some people may say, the opposite of faith is doubt that has happened, or uncertainty. And they say, no, no, no. That's part of the faith journey. There is place for uncertainty. There's lots of place for uncertainty. And it's okay. Uncertainty is not a problem. It's not, I have to solve uncertainty because I have to be certain about everything. Again, we are not understanding how love works. <laughs> love is unpredictable. How can you be certain about unpredictable reality? So the opposite of faith is certainty. In other words, 
faith and uncertainty go by hand by hand. Because if not, we become addicted to certitude. And that's a way of competing with God. Because I want to control everything. I want everything to be in this precise way. I want to control. And of course, behind control is fear many times. Because we feel that if something is out of control, our control, Hmm. We know what's going on. The Bhagavatam is saying, Bhayam dutiya abhinivyeshatashya. Fear comes by absorption in duality. So duality means, in this case, that we are seeing reality not in a unified way. We are not seeing how everything is orbiting around the sweet will of God. But we are seeing, yeah, God may be somewhere else, but I'm here and I have to control. And we start to like fra- see reality in a fractured way. Like this is here, this is isolated. And fear comes. Fear comes. But when we understand everything is revolving around a unifying principle, there is harmony. But when there is not that vision, bayam, fear is the norm. And as a, as a reply to that fear, we try to control. We try to acquire certitudes, a list, long list of certitudes. And I, need, I understand we need some certitude. You need some level of, okay, you are awakening tomorrow morning and you know there is something to eat during the day and you have where to sleep tonight. I mean, if certain, I'm not against certitude in every single level. So I'm not throwing you here to, the, to an unending journey of uncertainty you know, because it may be too much. But watch out going to the other extreme because if we become addicted to certainty, to control, to order, that can be, as, as we mentioned in the book, a result of too much order can be a dictatorship. A totalitarian regime is too much order. Everything has to be in place. Everything has to fit. And you have a dictatorship. <laughs> too much chaos, too much disorder can be too much also. So we try to balance the two of them. So let certainty balance uncertainty but let uncertainty also put certainty in context so to say mm-hmm. so we don't have actually a problem with doubt we shouldn't have a problem with doubt sometimes in fact the role of the guru is to create doubts in the disciple not doubts in the sense of oh krishna exists or not is this real or not not that those type of doubts but doubts regarding that the student may think, I have figured out this, I understand this. And the guru will say something and the disciple will be, oh my gosh, I never mm-hmm. thought from that place. Now I don't know if I, I'm, I'm not so sure if I actually understand this. Good, no, it's good. You are put into a new situation where you are opening to further learning, further learning. Because again, we, can, we are dealing with the infinite. So whatever we can understand is, can be real, but can will be always partial in the sense of you can always discover that more and more endlessly mm. endlessly <clears throat> so it's important that <clears throat> for us as sadhakas as spiritual practitioners we remain open about and aware attentive about all the possible defense mechanisms that may be triggered when we are faced with a class like this that i'm giving now <laughs> No, what we sometimes call cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance has mostly to do with 
you receive some information that contradicts your current beliefs. And instead of being open to learn and grow and change, we, we, feel, we feel threatened. So we shut down um, and we probably even attack what we, we feel that is contradicting what I consider as true. So it's, imp I mean, I'm not condemning that process. And I can, I try to be empathic. We are all going through that because we build our worldview according to certain paradigms. That's our life. That's who we are. That's how the world works. That's who God is. And it's nice. But in time, some of those paradigms may require you know, upgrading, updating, adjustment. And it's important to recognize in us sometimes comes this defense mechanism. Like this is contradicting my current paradigm. What to do now? Uh, so then we choose. Do I open myself to that? Do I examine that with critical thinking, with discernment, with honesty? Or just I shut down to whatever contradicts my current beliefs, which basically makes you a fanatic. <laughs> Someone that nobody can talk to unless they agree with you on everything, <laughs> which doesn't make you a very attractive person, basically, to relate to. Because imagine if I tell you, we can talk only if you agree with me on everything. And that's that's a form of slavery, basically. I'm inviting you to submit and lose your own individuality and voice to just merge into my opinion. And many people do that in the name of in representing God and representing these beautiful, wide, infinite, unending ideals. They present them in such a narrow way. And I would say that's that's why many people choose to become atheists, not necessarily because they got an experience of God and said, oh, I don't like it, <laughs> but they just got such a degree of misrepresentation. <clears throat> I was reading the other day from one, <clears throat> or even people who were a practitioner, but somehow they got so much misrepresentation that they said, this too much. I was reading the other day that the main religious denomination in the U.S., of course, is Catholic Christians. And the second main denomination is ex-Catholic Christians. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that speaks for itself. <laughs> so, so anyhow, my, my words in this connection have to do with, as we already mentioned these days, the nature of reality is ever-evolving. It's in constant growth and expansion and movement. So how much can we claim? I already understand that. When I say that, that it has already evolved into something else. In the Chaitanya Charitamrita described Krishna is becoming at every moment more beautiful. That's why he's called Krishna. And Krishna means the all attractive. So all attractive doesn't mean He's all attractive and he cannot become more attractive. Now, all attractive means he's constantly upgrading his own beauty. Try to imagine meeting such a person. We already meet someone who is a little attractive here. It's like, wow. No? But what to imagine that someone like this? And in every sense of the term. So in that sense, Krishna, since Krishna means the all attractive and Krishna is becoming more attractive at every second, Krishna is becoming more Krishna at every second. Because Krishna means all attractive. 
So Krishna is becoming more of himself, more of Krishna is Krishnaizing himself, <laughs> self-Krishnaizing himself at every second. So he's becoming more beautiful, more of himself. So Chaitanya Charitamrita says, that's how Krishna is in constant expansion and evolution. And his devotees, they're loving Krishna every time, at every second more. So they can, they are dedicated to serve that beauty. Krishna is, is this beautiful now? And the devotees had this level of love to serve that beauty. But then Krishna receives that loving service and that makes him more beautiful. <laughs> so now we have a problem, not a problem, but we have a new challenge. So Krishna is more beautiful. So the devotees require bigger dedication to honor that new beauty. And that makes Krishna even more beautiful. <laughs> and that makes the devotee even more loving. And that has no end. Krishna Das Kavras Goswami mentions, they, both of them, Krishna and, their, and his devotees, enter into a competition in which none of the two parties accept defeat. Krishna more beautiful, the devotees more loving. Krishna more beautiful, the devotees more love. And then endless competition. So that's how... That's if that's how reality operates. And this world is an outcome of that world. That's what it's saying in Vedanta Sutra, Lokavatu Lila Kaivalin. It is described that the material creation is an outpouring of the divine love experience between God and his devotees. That is so overflowing that it starts to sprinkle in the form of all these material planets. That's how described in Vedanta Sutra. It's not Padmanava Swami's Sutra. It's Vedanta Sutra. So the point is, if, if the ultimate reality is in constant growth and expansion, and everything else that exists is a, an extension of that, that's in the DNA of all existing reality, of all creation, is this pattern of growth and evolution. So again, how come we can be fully certain about such a thing? How can we say, I already know that, understand it. It's constantly moving. <laughs> Carl Jung will say in that regard, what in the morning was true, in the evening have become a lie. <laughs> in this connection. Bhakti Thakur will say, uh, today's perfection is tomorrow's imperfection. That's, that's the spirit of a progressive thinker. You are attained today a level of perfection. Tomorrow that will be already in perfection. <laughs> not to dismiss that, but to invite you to a new challenge tomorrow. That, that's inspiring. It's not like, okay, I reached perfection. What else now? Nothing else. There's nothing more. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> no, no. Tomorrow that will be in perfection. You have a new layer of perfection. So, so I think this is very important for all of us to to live our life and to live our spiritual life in a dynamic way, in a very fluid and ever over, always open way. Jesus will say, be like a child. No? Remain like a child, child spirit. No? Always curious, always learning, always open, not claiming absolute conclusions about everything and anything. <laughs> so this is the same. In Buddhism, they have this expression, is Shoshin. So Shoshin means... Beginner's mind. Remain, keep a beginner's mind. Srila Siddhartha will say, we are students forever. 
So again, you can see these are like universal patterns. This is not even our own tradition, only only other tradition, but it's a way that all these great personalities naturally converged in these same conclusions. You know, that's the only way we can possibly relate to reality. You know? Beginner's mind, eternal student, always discovering, always surprised, always astonished. Mm -hmm. Our Shastra say, Rasasar Chamatkar. The essence of Rasa is Chamatkar. Chamatkar means astonishment, an experience of constant astonishment. That's the juice of life, basically. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, don't take Christian consciousness for granted. That's how I like to put it. Don't think you already know. I already know. Yeah, Prabhupada, I know Prashad, I know Kirtan, I know Deities, I know Guru. I know, I know all this stuff. I, I'm senior devotee. I'm practicing for 25 years. I, I already know all these things. And it's like, maybe, like GPS, recalculate. You know? <laughs> maybe you should recalculate your, your last 25 years and how you have understood all this stuff. Because then... If you are an actual elder, an actual wise person, sage, <laughs> again, you will remain in beginner's mind, child spirit, student forever, <laughs> open to uncertainty, open to new questions, open to not knowing some things. As I say, some, once one the Buddha asked Prabhupada, who is the Yuga avatar for Treta Yuga, which is the divine descent for one particular age? And Prabhupada say, I don't know. Next question. No. That's it. He was able to say, I don't know. Many of us are not willing to that. I have to know everything. I have to have an answer for every question. Sometimes we can say, I don't know. Or we can say something and also say, but also I don't know. If you ask me, who is Krishna? I can talk about that maybe for some time. But at the same time, I can say, I don't know. <laughs> I know all this, but it's more what I don't know than what I know. <laughs> so I remain open to know to know more about Krishna, to allow Krishna to be more in my life, not to know more in, in terms of intellectual thing. But again, sometimes we love questions, we love answers, but we don't like questions that much. We love closure instead of disclosure. Instead of something that leaves us in a realm of openness and possibility and potential, and we want like, give me a definite answer to this question, Maharaj. What's this? <laughs> and if you try to give a more nuanced, gray answer, not black and white, it's like, no, no, no. Be, give me in two words. What's this? It's, it doesn't work like that. Reality doesn't work like that. Because if we just go for certainty, control. Remember, yesterday we talked about vulnerability. If you go just for certainty and control, there's no vulnerability left. Vulnerability means I'm open. I remain open to so many things. Certainty and control is like closer, closer, closer. No vulnerability. And faith without vulnerability is not faith, I will say. Let's use stronger words. Faith without vulnerability is useless. It's not faith. Now, faith has to remain in a vulnerable, you have to remain in a vulnerable state, in disclosure, openness, uncertainty. That, that's real faith. And again, uncertainty is not a bad word. Uncertainty, as Brené Brown will say, uncertainty is not a torture chamber. 
for us sometimes it is uncertainty is like <laughs> sorry you comment on, on that quickly? yeah yeah about the connection between the head and the heart mm -hmm. and the head is never satisfied always needs certainty the heart when it's open mm -hmm. is no so when the head and the heart are not in alignment mm. there's total confusion yeah. we can exist in the state of uncertainty with certainty mm -hmm. when our head and our heart are mm -hmm. in alignment but if i'm just mentalizing trying to mentalize the heart and mm. make everything fit mm. the heart is controlled by love mm. which is unpredictable mm. then yeah we're setting ourselves up for a festival of a misery as <laughs> we say yesterday a festival of misery, festival of misery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah thanks for the uh, thanks for the addition so, yeah it's totally crucial to align the two of them and we are not promoting cancel one cancel the other but use one in the service of the other i mean it's not be rational no use your rational faculties but also acknowledge the limits of that <clears throat> how you <clears throat> real <clears throat> sorry reality ultimately is, exists beyond our head no? we have a head we have buddhi we have discerning capacity we have to do something with that it's not just like a museum piece that has to get more and more dust without being used but yeah we have to be careful not to be addicted to everything has to be figurable through my own intellect hmm? so yeah uncertainty is again it's not a torture chamber as i was saying it's most of a breakthrough portal no if, if we properly are are properly aligned uh curiosity is a blessing uncertainty is again openness possibility potential hmm? In potential, in potential, there's so much uncertainty. We don't know what we can be, but we need potential. We need to the possibility of being something else of what we are now. So that's very important. So to actually not knowing or being uncertain about some things is not a problem. So the main problem, this is a quote by Mark Twain that I shared in my book. And that was then I went to another seminar. Someone else was sharing that same quote. I was like, wow, interesting. <laughs> he will say something like, it is not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. He says, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> that, that's a real trouble. No? When we develop this false sense of security and certainty on the base of something, and we shouldn't be that secure about, that, that like certain about. Of course, as by Kunta de Prabhu said, there is a, a deep certainty that we have. It's not that we are totally thrown into an ocean of out, out, doubt the, about everything. There is a very deep foundational certainty. And that certainty is the one that allows me to coexist with other forms of uncertainty. I'm okay with uncertainty because there is this certainty. So, yeah, certainty is foundational. And uncertainty will be sustainable by that. Hmm? And Krishna says that in the Gita many times. For example, in the seventh chapter, he says, uh, I know everything. Seventh chapter, verse 26, in case you don't believe me. So Krishna said, I know everything past, present, and future, but me, nobody knows. Hmm. So he makes that point, like that mysterious point. Like, don't, don't watch out to say, I know Krishna. 
No? Again, we know we love him on some way or another levels, but he's endlessly knowable and lovable. So we can never like claim it's over. I got it. I got him. Hmm? Or, or Arjuna in the 10th chapter, 15 verse, he's telling to Krishna, only you can know yourself by your own internal potency. Only you can know yourself who, who we are. So we need that humbling, those humbling type of statements because sometimes we may get too much probably in our in our heads. Like I know Krishna, I memorized thousands of verses and can't recite <laughs> Bhagavad Gita by heart. So no. <laughs> there are so many professional reciters that may know the scriptures better than us in terms of memorization. But where is the heart there? Hmm? So as we mentioned before, the, the nature of reality is undeniable. When we have an experience of that, it's undeniable, but it's inconceivable. It's too, too self-evident to doubt. I cannot doubt it. It's self-effulgent, self-evident, but it's too deep to comprehend. I cannot claim. Again, it's too deep. Krishna is too deep. Reality is everything is too deep. So better to remain there and to be open to, how to say, to modify certain wrong ideas we may have about God. We've talked about that this day. Sometimes we may still project unresolved uh, childhood trauma with our father figures and project that to God. Mm-hmm. Oh, Krishna may be angry, maybe chastising me. If I, I haven't chanted my 16 rounds, I remember once one devotee told me that. I was horrified, but I was on a car, so I couldn't jump from the car. But I was like, <laughs> he will tell me. <laughs> yeah, he will tell me. The day the day I don't finish my 16 rounds, that day has gone in vain completely. And, 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 and that's, I mean, that's half of the worst part of the equation. The worst part is that he felt the day I chanted the 16 rounds, I'm perfect, I'm okay. So completely like mechanistic, completely like formulaic. Like if I reach this number, Krishna loves me and I have nothing to change and I was perfect that day. If I fail, if I chanted 15, one less, the day went in vain. Like black and white dot com. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wow, that's not not how reality operates. (laughs) There's more nuance to reality than that. (laughs) <laughs> so anyhow, sometimes we need to unknow God, to know him further. When I say unknow means to be open to deconstruct some of the false ideas we may have about who Krishna is, who not God is, so we can get to know him better. So to know God, you have to unknow God. That's why today's lecture is knowing through unknowing. We have to be open to rediscover Krishna in yet a new form and a new way. That's what Krishna is teaching, for example, in <clears throat> in the highest of all his lilas, which will be the rasa lila, the rasa dance, the circular dance that he performs with the gopis. That's very, very mysterious. That's completely drawn into. I mean, Krishna is playing the flute at midnight. The gopis are called to enter into a very thick, dense forest. Everything is dark. Krishna is dark, by the way. <laughs> so everything is dark. Darkness has to do with mystery. And Krishna is called Sham Sundar, the beautiful dark one, or Sham. He's who is dark like a cloud. Hmm? Dark rain cloud, but he's dark. Darkness implies mystery. 
So the gopis reach Krishna, and Krishna has called them. The gopis have, have heard their names in the flute sound. In the flute call, they heard each one of them. They heard their name being pronounced. Yeah. They just run without the second thought, without the first thought, <laughs> without thinking. Just, But Krishna is receiving them. Actually, he's not receiving them. He's telling them, what are you doing here? Oh, it's too late. You are young maidens. I'm a single boy in the midst of the forest. This is this won't look right to the eyes of society. Return to your house. And the gopis are like, but you call us. <laughs> and you are sending us back. So again, Krishna starts to unpredictability, to invoke mystery, to invoke like uncertainty. Now, like, what to do now? What's going on? <laughs> And the gopis try, of course, the Pranaya Gita starts there, which is the gopis reply to Krishna sending them back, and they defeat Krishna in argument, <laughs> and they stay with him. And the first edition of the Rasa Lila begins, but after some time of dancing and, and so on and so forth, Krishna disappears. Again, mystery, uncertainty, unpredictability. Uh, and the gopis start to look for him. And crying separation, then we have the Gopi Gita. Eventually, Krishna reappears, the Rasa Lila, in, in, his, in, his, in, his, in its re edition, you know, that is manifest finally. But my point is in all these dynamics, again, so much of uncertainty, so much of unpredictability, so much of mysteries going on. Hmm? And the Gopis are completely okay with that. It's not that the Gopis are, ah, forget about this guy. I mean, he's too unpredictable, too <laughs> mysterious. I mean, the more the more Krishna is like that, the more Krishna is like Krishna, <laughs> the more the gopis fall in love with him. Because they love unpredictability. They have love and they understand love is all about mystery, uncertainty, unpredictability. They are completely attuned to that. Intuitively, they are living in that space. So they have no problem. They are always open to rediscover Krishna, to love him in that beginner's mind. And the gopis, as we know, they are the greatest devotees of Krishna, but they are the most humble of them all. They are never thinking, we know so much. Someone like Narad Muni or Uddhav comes to Vrindavan, they are like, oh, the gopis say, a devotee is coming. Let's learn from him. Let's offer our obeisances so we are blessed. And all the gopis fall to the ground thinking, we are just uncivilized village girls, what we can know ourselves. And Narad Muni and Uda are like, oh my gosh, no, this the greatest personality falling at my feet. What to do? <laughs> so they feel I'm full. The gopis feel I'm. We are fools. We don't know that much. And and that's a big lesson in itself. Now, first we have to learn to be fools. Only then you can be wise. No? If you just want to be wise, you remain a fool. <laughs> no? First learn to be full. First learn to unknow, as, as we were talking today. First learn to acknowledge your own ignorance. In a humble way. No? In Socratic terminology, what will Socrates say in that connection? The only thing I know is that I don't know. That's like, oh, okay. And it's not that he only said that. He wrote volumes. He was like a walking university. It's not that he didn't know anything. So I'll say that quote to be cool. I don't know what to say. So the only thing I know is that I don't know. That's my only legacy. No, he gave a huge legacy, but his conclusion on top of that was the only thing I know is that I don't know. He was so close to the infinite that he was he didn't feel like I can claim that I know something. 
Whatever I know compared to the infinite is nothing. Srila Siddharmaras wants to say that. He said, the closest you get to the infinite, try to imagine. You, we cannot imagine, but anyhow, try to make your imagination collapse. <laughs> the closest we get to the infinite, the more you will realize there is no limit to progress. Because you are, are, are reaching a realm of infinite possibilities. So there's no limit to progress. So how much you can claim that you have made progress if you are reaching a place where there's unlimited possibility for progress? How much you can say, okay, I already did it, do it. But there's unlimited more possibilities. So you remain eternally humble in, the, in relation to the infinite. <laughs> hmm. So in, in Christianity, they use this term, docta ignorantia. I like it. It means learned ignorance. You have to learn ignorance. <laughs> That's an interesting. You have to deconstruct. You have to unknow. You have to, <clears throat> as we mentioned, the Keno Upanishad. I don't know Krishna. Oh, those they know. The ones who say they know Krishna, they don't know. <clears throat> so it's important that we are open to unknowing. It's important that be willing to learn from what we don't know. Not only be willing to learn from what you know. And sorry if all the words I'm saying sound completely counterintuitive and like paradoxical, but, but that's how reality works, actually. Ultimately, all these things are there and are properly harmonized. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to conclude today's lecture, as I told you before, sharing if two, three verses, but briefly, I won't go too much into detail just to further uh, illustrate what we have been talking today in connection to never be too sure about who we are, who Krishna is, because it can be understood and expressed endlessly. So I will share three, three sections in the scripture where we will see what God says about us, what we say about God, and what God says about God in terms of how much we can know each other. So in the Bhagavad Gita, in the second chapter of the Gita, <clears throat> as you may know, Krishna speaks a lot about us, about the soul, about the Atman. But he, he mostly speaks in negative terms, in the sense of he speaks about what the Atman is not. No? The, 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 the soul cannot be killed, cannot be dried by wind, cannot be burned by fire, does not die, does not, is not born. No, no, it's not. Because... Again, what can you say about the soul? Generally, when you have to speak about something, you give some reference to something else. But what's the reference to the Atman in this? I mean, the Atman is categorically another substance altogether. So Krishna begins saying just what the Atman is not. Not. You are this, not this, not, not. And when the point comes for him to say what the Atman is, positively, who we are, because we are Atman, he reaches this verse when he uses the word ascharya three times. Ascharya bhat, ascharya bhat, ascharya. Ascharya means basically like wonderful. So Krishna first said, this is not the soul, this is not the soul. And Arjuna asks, so what's the soul? What's the soul? He said, and he can only repeat three times in that verse, wonderful, wonderful. You are wonderful, you are wonderful, you are wonderful. 
end of the message, period. <laughs> and Krishna remains in that state of wonder, no? like about who we are, about all that we can be. So again, in connection to what we are talking about today, now don't be very sure who you are. I mean, Krishna himself doesn't find the words to, to describe all that you can be. He can just repeat the same word three times and fall into a swoon almost. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Amazing. <laughs> yeah? yeah? Amazing. Mm -hmm. So that's on one level, one verse that I want to share. Now, God speaking about us in terms of in one sense, I'm knowing. Krishna is saying, you are wonderful. He's not entering to, it's like, okay, I'm lost there. There's so much that I can say that it's like, wow. Then there's a second verse that is coming from Brahma himself, who is the original guru from our Sampradaya, our lineage. And as we know, and as I mentioned before, Brahma at one point thought that he had figured out Krishna. <laughs> uh, when he met Krishna at the beginning of creation and Krishna appeared in a certain way and instructed him and he received this impression, okay, this is God, that's how he behaves, he talks, he looks. And eventually in time, he sees Krishna again in Vrindavan with his friends in full picnic. And this is, that's not the one I saw in the beginning of creation. No, that's not, that cannot be God. I mean, he's too informal. They're having a picnic. God doesn't have picnics. No, God is God. No, and he was instructing me in a very grave, sober way, no, with mudra, everything guru-like, so to say. And now Krishna is eating with both hands, left hand, right hand, putting food in the mouth of his friends. His friends putting food in his mouth. That's not supposed to be God. So Brown thought, this is an imposter. This cannot be Krishna. And of course, he tried to show that he was an imposter by kidnapping his friends and calves. Long story short, of course, the four heads of Rama starts to spin like crazy <laughs> because he thought he had figured out God and now God is showing himself in his feature of God beyond God, Krishna and Vrindavan. <laughs> and Brahma is receiving his PhD in, in, in knowing who Krishna is. No? Uh, and he realized, oh my gosh, I thought I knew who God is. And now I'm starting starting to glimpse who Krishna actually is. But also I don't like to claim too boldly now. Oh, now I know who Krishna is. No, no, no. Now I'm in a state of uncertainty. I'm in a liminal space. What to say? So he pronounced a series of prayers in this connection, this spirit. And I, I like to share one of those verses, which is basically the last. And it's very much in the spirit of today's talk. So Brahma is saying, those who say that they know, let them know. As far as I'm concerned, I do not wish to speak very much about this matter. He's praying to Krishna. Oh, my Lord, let me say this much. As far as your opulences are concerned, they are all beyond the reach of my mind, body, and words. So Brahma, again, he's not too sure about anything at this point. He's like, those who say they know you, let them say whatever they want. I won't say that. I already said that five minutes ago. See, <laughs> see the result of this. My poor heads are like this. So as far as I'm concerned, I don't have a clue about the limits of your opulences and word and beauty. and every, I, I cannot claim absolutes on the absolute. I prefer to remain open to unknowing and uncertainty and humbly pray to you. 
And then on top of this, and with this we'll conclude, there is a very there are many sections in the Bhagavatam like that, but there's one particular verse in the chapter 87 where the Vedas personify the praying to Krishna. And they describe how not only someone like Brahma doesn't know the limits of Krishna's glories, but Krishna himself doesn't know the limits to his own glories. So the Vedas personified pray to Krishna and say, because you are unlimited, neither the lords of heaven nor even you yourself can ever reach the end of your glories. So Krishna himself is doesn't know. <laughs> the limit of his own glory why he doesn't know the limit of his own glory because he has no limit so you cannot know something that does not exist well, I mean he has no limits so a limit does not exist in him so he cannot know a limit to his glory because such a limit does not exist so there is something he doesn't know <laughs> he doesn't know the limit of his own glory so if, God, if this is the case for God himself to speak of us and he's okay with not knowing that he's okay coexisting with unknowing and what to speak when krishna wants to taste what's in the heart of sri radha he krishna himself says that that's a whole class and seminar altogether we need 300 lifetimes apart for that gore lila gore tattva but when krishna feels I want to taste what's Radha's experience. What's her love for me? What's the beauty she perceives in me? What's the happiness she derives by seeing me? I want to, I don't know that. Again, Krishna saying, I don't know. <laughs> I want to experience that. And he appears as Mahaprabhu. And eternally, as Mahaprabhu, eternally, he remains exploring that bottomless ocean. But it's unpredictable. It's uncertain. There's always something new to discover. <laughs> So as Mahaprabhu, Krishna, God himself is fully dedicated to that perpetual project of exploring the depths of his own heart. And it has no end. He's okay with that. He's becoming every day more Krishna, more Mahaprabhu. So the more we, we acknowledge that, the more we can become more of ourselves as well. So anyhow, a few words that I want to share. Um, Whatever I can say, of course, it's never enough. And that's why also the Vedanta Sutra says, Ikshatena Shabda. Regarding the Absolute, we cannot say anything. Or basically, we can never say enough. We can try to say something, but we are talking about the unlimited. So it's just, again, praying to just be able to accurately touch one point in an infinite line. That will be the success. So I don't know if anything else you may like to share or ask about before we <clears throat> before we conclude today's meeting and our three-day session. Something you may like to share, ask, in con yeah. ideal in connection yeah. to the topic. Just comment that um, also we got an online uh, person asked, had a question who was here the other night. And mm. She had a question she wanted me to put opposed to mm. you, um, but in relation to when Srila Prabhupada was here, he would frequently take walks with his devotees every morning, and all the devotees would gather around, and it was a perfect time for them to ask questions, and some, mm -hmm. sometimes the questions had preconceived answers built into the question, mm. like the devotee wanted confirmation bias, you know, it 
or what is that? Is that what that's called? Confirmation bias. But, yeah, they mm -hmm. were already biased, and they wanted the confirmation <laughs> that their bias yeah. was correct. Yeah. And Prabhupada was perfect at pulling the rug right out from underneath them. Every time his answer would be, and he know he knew when they were asking this type of question, which mm -hmm. was a leading question, because they wanted to feel like, oh. Yeah. So for whatever reason, I wanted to be seen as mm. knowing. Mm -hmm. And he would ask, answer their question in such a way that it completely destabilized their entire position. Yep. He would always answer it unpredictably. Mm. Yeah. And this happened constantly. Yeah. But, you know, some of us were still. Yeah. And so it happened over and over. And it was extremely, for, you know, bystanders like me, rarely got to go on the one one it was uh really amusing it was really <laughs> fun to see how yeah. Prabhupada could introduce doubt where this person came on with mm. certainty mm. and he was expert at that yeah yeah as we mentioned that's the role of the guru no like to destabilize stabilize destabilize, destabilize those types of approaches because the Gita say that so Pariprashnena means the duty of the disciple is to inquire humbly from the Guru so inquire humbly means I'm not being bringing my own bias and my own conclusions and I'm using the Guru to confirm my own bias I mean that's not very glorious I can tell you <laughs> it's externally you can make a show of humble inquiry but internally you are just exploiting the yeah. sacred personality just to confirm whatever you are biased to so that's not that's exact opposite of the spirit of the inquiry it's when it's healthy to have questions but humble means i'm open to to even be corrected about the nature of the questions no. it's not only i'm open to to an answer to my question i'm open that maybe i'm presenting the wrong question because there are ways to to present a question also it's not that any question is perfect there is an art to present a question as, as well as there is an art to give an answer so yeah part of the role of the guru is first to to pierce through the the, the background of the question and, and maybe the answer to the question is not so much the answer that the person was expected but a correction to how the question was presented a correction to the spirit behind the question. And that was the actual answer we needed to receive. You know? so, so yeah, I, that that's totally, totally true. Thank you. Okay. So, um, so there is one question from someone yeah, from the other day. Ivania Rodriguez was here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Women here, and she was here Friday. So this might be off topic a little, but it's. Question. I, we are under the umbrella of radical personalism topic. Yeah, so, so. I want, I, yeah. So her question goes like this: We hear, and this is verbatim, we hear women are of lower birth. How can we rationalize this, and why is this so? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I'm seeing the question here also. Oh. She just sent it she to you too. <laughs> okay, it is a question. I'm putting it there for those one. Well, uh, I'm sorry that you heard that. <laughs> one shouldn't hear that. So we hear so many things. 
to begin with. No? I mean, we, have, we hear so many things from so many places in so many directions. So the fact that we hear something doesn't mean it's true. Let's begin there no? because we can hear about anything. I mean, so first of all, we, that we hear something doesn't mean that that thing is true. I know, no, that's not true. Women are not lower birth to begin with. That may be. So the question is why this is so. Of course, the answer to that is <clears throat> it's not one because why someone may think that women are inferior may not be the same reason why someone else may think that women are inferior. So I don't want to be reductionistic. Like this is the reason why every single person on earth thinks women are inferior because there may be different reasons. None of them valid, but <laughs> there will be different reasons. Uh, but I agree that many, there's lots of uh, chauvinism. Chauvinism, you say? Yeah. Misogyny. Misogyny, thank you. Yeah. Not only in our tradition, but in many other traditions, uh, patriarchal uh, worldviews that somehow tend to, 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 to give this idea of male dominance and... and and like I, we were talking yesterday in the podcast we made in the morning with Dania, she was talking about the importance to redeem the, the feminine principle and to and to take care of and to yeah to redeem women in their position and and all and, and so on and so forth. And of course, I totally agree with that. And I commend to her that. But I will say that for that to happen con comprehensively, one important point is also to to allow men, not to allow, but to encourage men <laughs> who are the ones who many times oppress, uh, to allow men to contact their feminine side. Because as long as you as a male are in denial of your female side, you will oppress that feminine side whenever that manifests, what to speak, when it is directly embodied in the form of woman, so to say. You know? In part, that's become you have not properly healed or worked with your own feminine side as a male. You, know? so you have a sense of a, a, a toxic idea of your masculinity, basically. You know? Like this is, what's, this is what it means to be a male or whatever. So whatever, something opposite appears, that's inferior. You know? One may think, one may say. But actually, it all speaks about your own unresolved uh, psyche and... and, and a harmonizing of yin yang, so to say. <laughs> so I'm giving a very wide answer. Of course, many every case may be different, but but I just in case, just to make the set the record straight, I personally do not consider that women are inferior, and that's not the message given in in the scriptures either. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are sections in the scripture which speak about woman like a danger to men. There are sections in scripture which speak about man as a danger to woman. So you have to, it's important when one addresses the scriptures to understand also, there are many things to understand. One of them is what's the language that scriptures use in a particular time in history that certain things are being said, and what's the context, what's been said after, what's been said before, because the text out of context becomes a, becomes a pretext. No. <laughs> you can just isolate one statement to justify anything, as I already mentioned. So when a scripture sometimes speaks about how dangerous women are for men, but then how men, dangerous men are for women, they are not saying, therefore, keep apart from each other forever because you are dangerous to each other. I mean, that's not very practical. <laughs> 
So actually what these crypto are saying is if we are not properly aligned or educated, in potential, we are a danger to each other. And it's not only woman to man, woman to woman, man to man, and so on and so forth. If, if, but it's really in the woman-man relationship, there has to be certain things in place for the relationship to be what is meant to be, which has a totally beautiful and sacred potential. But if certain things are not in place, both can be a danger to each other. I mean, but it's not about the intrinsic constitution of being a man or being a woman. It's just about what happens when we are not attuned with reality. We become a public danger, basically. Whether man, whether woman. <laughs> Last spring I attended a seminar out in Arizona called, uh, it was actually, um, the theme of it was integrating the divine feminine with the sacred masculine. And, you know, my understanding is that this is just one incarnation. Mm -hmm. I've been woman many times, I'll be woman again, maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe but we've all been both. Mm-hmm. So there's no one way to cat in the spiritual absolute sense. There's really no difference on this earthly plane. But who are the highest devotees of Krishna? Mm-hmm. It's all the devotees mm-hmm. of your soul. They're all the most glorious devotees mm-hmm. are of the feminine. We're we're the Prakriti. We're all feminine in relation to Krishna, mm. Krishna in mm. that regard. Mm. So Krishna Purusha, we're mm-hmm. Prakriti. So we're all feminine. Mm. So how can you say about the feminine? Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's actually, and without the feminine, none of the men would be here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's that. Nobody would be here. Yeah. We come from the feminine, mm-hmm. and if we're buried in the earth, we go, we turn. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this idea that the feminine is somehow inferior is completely bogus, yeah. in my opinion. It's, it's, again, it's, it's a symptom of some unresolved personal issues that you are just projecting onto. You have to blame someone. No? So, oh, it's a woman. They are to blame because oh, whatever. It's, if it's not the woman, it's this political party or that group, religious group of my, of my mother-in-law, of my father-in-law, of my dog. I mean... Is a tendency of finding, projecting the enemy outside instead of taking full risk. Yeah. To the scripture, yeah. it says right there, women is inferior, and here we have women as a historically subjugated class. Mm-hmm. So now we look as to where is this coming from? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there is lots of work to do generationally and in terms of collective unconscious that many people still carry and needs to be. Uh, transform. So I think it's a very important time in history to reclaim and redeem the feminine in a healthy way. Again, not not to, to the extreme of becoming like fanatic feminist in the sense of okay, we hate men now, and that's my femininity. <laughs> or like, no, I, I want woman has can do everything, and you end up imitating men because so many things can happen in the context of that. And at the end of the day, as you mentioned, we also have to be careful not to over identify ourself in one way or another that it's creating like a duality again man woman but at the end of the day we are we are part of one same nature spiritual nature of souls in connection to to god so 
But yeah, I, I, I acknowledge that there's lots of communal issues to address and solve and heal. I mean, this has been a big part of my attempt to address some of that stuff. <laughs> and there's one point in, in the second part of my book regarding redeeming the feminine and, and, and properly appreciating that and so on and so forth. So, okay. So I think we are in time for today. So I really appreciate the presence of all of you, your attention, your my Kuntadev's Prabhu invitation here as well and hosting us and the presence of all of you as well online. So thank you so much. Shri Radha Govinda Ki Jai, Shri Man Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Pramana, Hari 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 Bo, Shri Bo.